Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for yet another episode of Podcasting Glory uh, here on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, as well as with video here on YouTube. So this week, as you can see, I am doing my first live interview ever in my new studio space here. We've only been here for a couple months. And uh, I have... Mark Horowitz. He is a sociologist and a professor. And why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as to your credentials and why anybody should listen to you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Yes, thank Happy you. Happy to be your first live guest. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm a sociologist at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. Um, I've been focusing over the last several years on um, basically questions of human morality and human flourishing and the roots of um, moral and political polarization. So it, in a sense, it was fortunate because I had no idea what was in store in terms of the Trump world we live in and, and how sharp we see these uh, lines being drawn now politically and morally. So um, what I like to think I'm doing in my work is trying to understand why people not only divide politically, but what's going on underlying it from a social and psychological perspective. I can go into more detail as we... Well, this is exactly the thrust of my entire channel. Oh, great. Um, what you just described, which is Wonderful. why I wanted to have you on. Because okay. uh, we have a mutual friend who told me that you were coming into town, you're going to be doing a talk at the Secular Hub. Yes, on Saturday. Yeah. yeah, and I'm very interested in that talk. And so it it struck me as an immediate thing to like, oh, yeah, we got to talk on the great. podcast, right? Um, I have addressed a lot of issues with... Um, psychologists, uh, sociologists, I've had them on, talking about coercive persuasion, uh, cognitive dissonance, uh, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. I've done whole episodes on these topics because I am fascinated by why people think the way they think, um, why groups of people think and act the way they do, which is the sociology side, and all of it in a context for me of trying to understand extremism and how people get pushed in that direction because it seems to me that there are very few people who are naturally extremists but it is so easy to push somebody in that direction through indoctrination coercive persuasion social pressures etc so that's where i'm coming from in talking about this stuff, and I was fascinated by some of the work that you've done on this. Oh, so let's so let's talk about your work here. Okay, so. great. Yeah, yeah. Just a general reaction to what you just said. I mean, um, motivated reasoning. I've a wide array of evidence for that. Um, I think what gets complicated is that people differ on their tendencies and their predispositions. So I agree with you. Although many may not be naturally extreme, I think what you have is you have some natural differences in terms of people's likelihoods to be extreme, but then you also have conjunctural factors like what is their family environment, maybe there's a traumatic situation, maybe there's personal issues going on in their lives that also act as kind of pushers or nudgers into a kind of a more extremist situation, right? What I try to do, I don't necessarily deal with extremism per se, but I do deal with how different people um, ultimately emote differently. And in emoting differently, uh, certain kinds of stimuli in the social world are either more or less congenial to them. And what happens is we're not aware, generally, of how we're emoting. Uh, we, people have a tendency to project onto other people how they feel about the world. 
And I, I never noticed that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so, so, and then we also gravitate to people who share, um, I'm going to use the language of a um, school of social psychology called moral intuitionism. It, it comes out of this um, psychologist named Jonathan Haidt and his colleagues who mm-hmm. teaches at NYU. So uh, he talks about moral intuitions. So we have these moral intuitions, which are, which are essentially emotions that we share with other people, and we gravitate toward other people who share those moral emotions. And it's a natural thing to do. Uh, it, it's consistent with the fact that human beings are, I would argue, a tribal species. We're very groupy. It's very natural to be groupy. Uh, groupiness gives us a sense of belonging, a uh, sense of positive distinctiveness. Um, so um, going back to your fundamental question, like, well, why are people doing this? Why do people believe only what they want to believe? Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is, on an individual level, it protects our ego. Human beings want to believe that we're good and right and smart and, and good people. Um, if we're confronted with information that could dislodge that, we tend to try to keep it at bay in various ways. But then on a group level, to the extent we have these group instincts, we're going to want to protect our group identity and also keep at bay ideas that would challenge that. Exactly. And that, in fact, that has been a point I've made many times in terms of politics, but it applies fully to religion, sports. Right. I mean, any activity where people get pretty passionate we're talking about um, identity, right? And there's this, there's this term, identity politics, and it's understood to a lesser or greater degree by the general public. Um, uh, you know, me being one of those general public, <laughs> you know, I'm not putting myself outside of that. Um, but, but I definitely agree that, uh, or think that there is a, um, it becomes, there's a, there's a, seems to be a line of some kind or a gray area where, you're all in on your group. You're all in on, a, on an identity. You're a Boy Scout, or you're an Eagles fan, or you're uh, evangelical, or whatever your identity is. But it, but what what I am working to try to ferret out the truth of, and so we can perhaps do something about it, is this line of extremism. This line where it, it, it you cross a point where you now are becoming a black and white thinker. You, you, you have an us versus them kind of mentality. And really the stress there is versus. Because there's us right. and there's them. And you can have a very, just to, just to sort of highlight what I'm talking about, you can have a beneficent or a neutral attitude towards them. It's all good. You know, sort of maybe tolerant, maybe even compassionate. But us versus them, now we're adversaries. Now you're the bad guy because you don't think the way I do. You don't believe the way I believe. I'm interested in why that happens, you know, and the forces that create that. I've talked a great deal about cult leaders because they're a manifestation of that at an extreme level. But we run into it every day outside of cults. So there must be something more to it in our nature, and that's what I'm interested in. So what can you tell well, me about Well, there's that? so many different levels you have to sort mm-hmm. of attend to uh, to be able to even approach such a complicated question. I think on, on a, like an evolutionary historical level... You mean level, that's just not a simple question? You don't have a simple real easy response. answer for me on that? I don't. What? Sadly, sadly. Oh, it's on. not a slogan. <laughs> uh, um, I guess the first part of it would be recognizing that Groupishness, going back to the point earlier, is simply part of human nature. That um, from an evolutionary point of view, we're a species. We, we uh, lived for hundreds of thousands of years in small-scale societies. Uh, those societies tended to feel a strong sense of group unity around symbols they constructed as sacred. 
Um, there's good arguments. Oh, that's a good point, actually, the sacredness of symbols. That's certainly an inherent part of cultic thinking. Yeah, sacred it, symbology, sacred language, sacred belief. And there's a, an argument comes out of uh, Emil Durkheim, but uh, others have uh, elaborated on it as well, that by rendering something sacred, we're tapping into what he called collective effervescence, which is strong feelings of emotion that get released that are larger than ourselves. Like the energy of you and I talking right now is is kinetic. It's larger than you'd be able to experience. I'd be experienced alone just talking to ourselves, right? That's just two people. It's true. And we, we know how group behavior is at a soccer game, and we've seen mob behavior in various settings. Um, so it's quite natural for human beings to sort of be able to trigger this kind of unleashing of energy, right? And in, in the process, this construction of sacredness tends to form strong group bonds. Mm -hmm. um, there's arguments made that, um, and this is contentious within the field of anthropology, but that there was at least some degree of intergroup conflict and competition over resources in prehistory. And if that is indeed the case, then those groups that fostered kind of moral and emotional feelings of solidarity and unity would outcompete those other groups that were tended to be more selfish, you know, the individuals themselves are selfish. Uh, there's a phrase that uh, comes out of evolutionary biology that, you know, selfishness beats altruism within groups, but altruistic groups beat selfish groups. So the basic idea is that within any group, if you had a lot of selfish people that weren't really committed to the well-being of each other and didn't feel a strong sense of unity, I mean, how much efficacy and, and solidarity are they going to bring to bear in a battle, say? They might retreat. If you have a lot of people willing to self-sacrifice, feel a strong sense of group unity, well, they're going to outcompete in their genes, to put it very reductionist, but their genes will pass on to the next generation if indeed they're more successful, right? So this groupishness seems to have deep evolutionary roots on one level that we all share. Now, what I'm trying to do, and especially in the context of political polarization, is try to understand why we see such a division, particularly on the left and right. There's other divisions out there. Um, Those know, are certainly highlighted more in the last couple of years for reasons we don't have to talk about right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty self-evident. <laughs> but right? yeah, but it's kind of obvious that we're a nation divided. Yeah. So, so what it, it appears to be the case that people's tendencies, even though we're all groupy, tend to be a little bit different, and that people on the left liberal end of the spectrum um, are oriented more. And I'm, I'm going to use the language now again of Jonathan Haidt, moral foundations theory, more oriented to anything that might trigger harm to vulnerable, you know, people or animals or groups, um, and they tend to have a strong feeling of of um, distrust toward authority figures, and oftentimes they're anti-authoritarian. Not all of them. We can certainly talk a bit about this emergence of kind of social justice warrior culture that we're seeing around mm -hmm. universities, and uh, certainly elaborate on that. But I think on the whole, people on the left liberal end of the spectrum tend to be animated more by kind of anti-establishment, anti-authority kind of sensibility, coupled with deep feelings of care and concern for the vulnerable. I think the stereotype about the bleeding heart liberal has a, a large chunk of reality to it. It's like my brother's, who's the opposite politically of me, kind of mocks me and says, I feel your pain, bro. I feel your pain. You know, because I'm deeply sensitive and I think it's common on the liberal left to be that way. I'm not mm -hmm. waving a flag and saying it's better. I'm simply pointing out that that tends to be a tendency on the, on the left. And what you just said is actually really important because, um, you know, there's plenty of people who will watch, who will automatically divide on party lines. Just because you just said you're a liberal, right. and automatically, and hear me. yeah, you're a bad person now. Right. And I actually want to stress, having talked to you, you know, all all day today, that, um, you know, it needs to be acknowledged when somebody recognizes their bias, and can compensate for their bias either professionally. I mean, I mentioned as, as a sociologist, um, some don't, you know, and we have instances of that. 
and then others are quite good at it. You know, so um, so I don't, you know, so those of you out there who might be thinking, okay, now we're going to go anti-Trump for an hour. That's no, not what no. this podcast is about at all. And in talking about the divisions of left and right, I think we can do so in, a, in an unbiased way. And one of the challenges um, of this, we touched on it a little briefly earlier, one of the challenges is that tribalism feels good. Because yes. we're a tribal species, people in the audience who, let's say they're anti-Trump themselves, they would love a little bit of red meat thrown at them, and they can feel part of a group that's morally righteous. Yep. But then if we have pro-Trump supporters, oh, this is just some left-wing propaganda. And uh, so what I, I'm more interested in doing, and I increasingly feel as I get older, I'm more interested in trying to understand why we are biased, what is the underlying under, you know, underpinnings for this kind of intergroup hostility, um, with an eye to trying to address it, like going along to what you had said earlier. Exactly. Um, so with, with these tendencies on the left to be more oriented around triggers regarding care and distrust of authority, I think what we see on the political right, it's not that they don't care, they do, and they, they're certain, um, actually, Evidence suggests, for example, that conservatives give more to charity. They just, but they'll tend to give it to their church group, mm -hmm. where, where liberals tend to be more universalistic in their mindsets on this, right? So this isn't a criticism of conservatives. It's simply a empirical fact of, indeed, moral foundations theory is accurate, and they've done very, very large surveys with tens of thousands of people. Um, and what they find is that other sorts of sensibilities resonate more deeply with conservatives. So I had just mentioned intergroup competition for resources in prehistory. Well, um, feelings of group loyalty, like we are one and you need to stand by that, is something that triggers conservatives much, much more than liberals. Doesn't mean liberals have no feelings of group loyalty, but it's less so on average. Mm -hmm. they te liberals tend to gravitate more toward like, we're, we're one human family, we're all the same. That, that, and where conservatives are more attracted to like, say in the US context, American exceptionalism. Right, and, 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 these, like are, and these are not accusations we're sitting here talking about right no. now. It's a matter of, um, I don't know, um, you know, wolves hunt <laughs> rabbits. <laughs> they do. It's not an accusation. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a matter what of do. what do we see as an empirical regularity. Right. And so it might be a matter of people are conservative or are liberal. They line up in, this, in, these, in these lines because this is how they feel about their world outlook. Exactly. So the, right. the key, the, sort of the crux of this, um, none of my... None of moral foundations theory will be accurate or my work will be accurate if in the end there's not some kind of predisposition even as early as birth. It's not that we're born liberal conservative, but we're certainly not born clay. So we're born with certain predispositions. We then interact with people who share our moral intuitions even very early on. Um, and then through a kind of dialectical process, kind of it crystallizes into our social character. But part of that, going back to your earlier point, depends on what cultural milieu you're in, yep. what particular groups you're, sur you're surrounded by, That's to right. give you the sort of cultural resources to define yourself politically or ideologically. Right? It's fascinating. It's, it's a balance of nurture and nature. It is. And the arguments really tend to be just how much of a balance is it? Right. More so, I think, than it's than it's the argument is. Well, no, it's it's all nature, or oh no, it's all nurture. I suppose you could have those, you know, extreme ends. But I think. Well, I think many people in in academia, and certainly in my background as sociologists, and I can I'll be uh, open about it. When I was in graduate school, I uh, allied what is sometimes called in uh, social science total constructionism, and this is the idea that any norm or value we're free to construct, and that we really are born with no predispositions, right? So it's like a blank slate. 
view of the mm. world, right? That a, that a baby's just molded by their environment. So, like, I, I remember believing that, well, if you're liberal, it's because your parents were liberal and they taught you that. And if you're conservative, you're conservative. One of the, Your parents taught you conservatism. One of the problems with that is you always find families with... Exactly. And, and there's a, also another cliche in behavioral genetics. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a parent and you have one child, you're an environmentalist or a constructionist, right? If a parent who has two children... Well, then they're an atheist because they're like, how can these children be so different? And we're raising them the same. Um, so it, it turns out there's been a, mo- a move, I think, with, for good reasons. And, and Steven Pinker writes really well about this in The Blank Slate. There was a move historically against racism, against colonialism, and, you know, a reaction against how biology arguments were used in the most pernicious ways linked to Oh, you God, know, 1920 eugenics and, and all that. That's yeah. Right. So what happened was the stick got bent so far mm. that— all of a sudden now we're blank slates and we can have no predisposition and people with left liberal sensibilities gravitated towards those kinds of things because they're tribal and they feel good about I'm not judging them but morally superior mm-hmm. and if someone were to raise a question now and some of the, as we know some of the more controversial ideas which I deal with in my research like um, could there be biological differences say between men and women that are meaningful a lot of a lot of or psychological differences 99% of sociologists will say sure I mean a man has a penis and a woman has a vagina but they'll that's where evolution stopped you know I mean mm-hmm. um, they're, they're, they're willing to entertain physiological you know physical differences except at the level of the brain and there's a strong and reticence yeah you've that. pointed out that that exception exists only for humans yeah somehow and only within this right area Right. But everything else, oh, yeah, no, there's biological causes and differences, and, and they cause psychological differences with these animals and these circumstances and this condition. Right. we got mountains of evidence. Non-human animals are fine. But humans, humans are fine on the level of their physical bodies. But at right. the level of the brain, it cannot be meaningful. If it exists, it's trivial, and it can't have any implications for social order or social phenomena. So... Um, I don't know if you wanted me to. Well, let me let me, let me address the the larger question because I hit the political right. I mentioned they're more attuned to feelings of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, loyalty, but they're also more attuned to feelings of hierarchy, mm-hmm. and they're also more attentive, on average, to stimuli in the environment that could be aversive to them, like um, uh, threatening stimuli or uh, disgusting stimuli. So uh, uh, one work that's quite useful is uh, John Hibbing and Associates at University of Nebraska. They have a book called Predisposed where they cover all the research that they've done. But if you bring a whole bunch of people into the lab that identify as strongly liberal, strongly conservative, and you have them look at a collage of images, and some of the images are like a rainbow or neutral images like a door, but then you'll put some aversive stimuli in there. Like um, one of the images is the somebody eating worms or an open sore. And what they do is they use this eye tracker technology and they find that conservatives will home in more quickly on the aversive stimuli. Uh, Liberals do home in on it, just not as fast. And then conservatives stay and dwell on it longer. Now, obviously, this tiny little piece of information, well, what's the big deal? Okay, so they're looking at disgusting images or threatening images more. If it weren't for lots and lots of other kinds of evidence that we see on the level of videology, so if you look at what's going on, we just mentioned, uh, we hinted at Trump before, you know, (laughs) build the wall, keep them out. You know, the long tendency among right-wing political groupings to support for stand your ground laws you, know, you can shoot someone in your yard you know that's a, the, the hordes are coming uh, these things speak to a worldview that's anchored in underlying emotions that are more attentive to fear that are um, more groupy more tribal in the sense like we need to be protected from them and right. again I'm not saying this is a criticism uh, one of the wonderful things about studying political psychology over the last number of years is coming to see how great 
people the opposite end of the spectrum can be on certain dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, in psychology, they study a, a trait called conscientiousness, which um, has to do with an inclination to want to be organized, efficient, industrious, have a plan, set your goal. And this is something where conservatives are just simply, on average, far better than liberals. And it, it fits a certain stereotype, too, sort of the disorganized. There's actually a study by the psychologist Jonathan Jost at NYU and his colleagues where they looked at the bedrooms of uh, stu students in college that identify as liberal and conservative. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, hundreds of students, they're looking at them, and they find that, can you guess? I wonder. The, the liberal students' dorm room? Gee, I wonder which ones were messier. <laughs> messier, lots of CDs, you know, basically things that are going to indicate travel, different kind of cultural orientation. And in, in more conservative uh, dorm rooms, you're going to find things that suggest order. Like you might have... Uh, uh, um, a calendar or a hamper for your clothes. They'll put flags on the wall, which have to do with group identity. Right, symbolism. Yeah, right, symbolism. Sacred symbols. There you go. Again, linking to this kind of we are a tribe. Because right. that's the difference. We're all groupy, but people on the liberal left tend to be more universal in their orientation a bit. You know? It's so interesting. I can't help but relate some of this to my own history, of course, while we're talking. And, uh, and how... You know, my experience with Scientology was was very conservative, uh, very conservative mindset. All the things you just described about, you know, the conservative mindset are, or, or tendencies is really what I should say. I shouldn't say mindset because not all conservatives are going to fit this mindset. We are going to have exceptions and probably even from people watching the show. So, you know, that's okay. I just want to make that clear. We're talking in broad terms right now. But I can't help but relate this to my, my own experience with being, you know, taught. Uh, you know, I was naturally not a very clean person or organized person growing up. But I had those values constantly instilled in me by my parents, so I kind of became that way. And then in Scientology, they were just reinforced over and over again, daily cleaning you know, using a white cloth to check if there was any dust, you know, in the, in the space that you had just cleaned, your, your office or something, right? Somebody would come around and inspect it. That level of, you know, I, I, I jokingly say OCD, right? That, that, that level of, like, attention to detail was the, is, is, you know, the, sort of the epitome of my Scientology experience. Coming out of that, you know, I've had to reintroduce myself to the a concept that it's okay to be disordered about some things. Because <laughs> to this day, you know, uh, a, 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 I don't want to use the word conflict. That's too strong a term. But, you know, a point of friction between my wife and I is how clean I am versus how disordered she is. Oh, okay, right. Right? Because she's, you know, always been her entire life very liberal person. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and I love her. There's no criticism <coughs> of her. She's, you know, she's just, we're just different on this point. And, uh, and I just can't help. Yeah, and let know, me just very that. briefly respond to that by saying that, just stressing really strongly, these are averages. Yes. And that's very important. Like, men are taller on average than women, but there's many, many volleyball playing women that dwarf over me and you. Right. So, so the issue is conscientiousness is associated with conservatism, but there's tremendous numbers of highly conscientious liberals. Yep. And uh, the, the flip side of it is another psychological trait where liberals tend to predominate, which is a trait called openness to experience. Mm. And this, this is an orientation I had mentioned before, all the CDs that someone might have in their, you know, the liberal have in their dorm room. Just people interested in different kinds of food, um, you know, versus, and I know it's a stereotype, but versus I'm happy with my meat and potatoes. Right. You know what I mean? So 
there's evidence that seemed to back up these generalizations. Uh, but again, they are averages, and it's important to keep that in mind. And I think that's actually where some of us lose the plot. Because um, you know, you go onto Twitter or something, which have, uh, I, I think is the id of our collective consciousness. <laughs> if I, I'm not Freudian, but I, it's a, it's an apt term to use. Um, in other words, it's all the crazy that we have in our heads <laughs> exposed to the world. You know, um, you see a lot of uh, of finger pointing and blaming and and teeth gnashing over the exact things you're talking about right now. And I wonder how much of that is just so much wasted frustration on the, both the left and the right complaining about things going on with their opposite numbers, so to speak, you know, they're, they're the, the people on the, on the other side of the spectrum. Because those people aren't that way because they necessarily even choose, to, like it's not a conscientious decision or- to be this way all the time. We have tendencies. Yeah, I mean, we, we decide yeah. based on our impulses. I mean, I'm going to decide to go to a restaurant because I'm hungry. I didn't choose to be hungry. It's just you. Right. You know, so we have emotive tendencies that exist in us. And just you had mentioned wasted frustration. I would also, but I put it the other way. I would say there's things to be gained from the point of view of our tribal nature. When people put a post on Twitter on left or right, they're really not talking, I would argue. Like someone on the left's not really talking to the right. They're talking to the left. Mm-hmm. Like I have a certain moral validation I care about these things. You guys over there, you're harming the environment. You're harming vulnerable groups. And there's so there's a certain sort of moral status that that confers upon somebody who's within that particular group. Yes. You know, and so I, what I'm trying to do in my work, and it may be a fool's errand, I'm just trying to get us more conscious of this evolved tendency on each side, recognize, and I think um, Height's model, the intuitionist model is the most compelling one, at least thus far, science will advance, um, suggesting that clusters of moral emotions on the left and right differ and the kinds of policies they'll advocate. It's very, very hard for somebody on the left to appreciate that people on the right that are concerned about immigration might be concerned for reasons that can't be reduced to just racism. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about, Right. right? Because that's what we see. And I think it creates, I think it contributes to, I think it creates this divisiveness. I think there's a lack of understanding. I've had many conversations with liberal friends because I have a lot of liberal friends. Sometimes they, you know, why are they so evil? Why do they want to kill us? Why don't they care about health care? And again, notice the word you used, care. And notice you word health and and kill. Protecting vulnerable is all the the sort of core of the uh, liberal left. Whereas the right, they have that. Right after the election. Get over it, you pansies. You know, quit your quit your crying, you bunch of you know snowflakes. Why the snowflakes. term of the day? That's right. Yeah. I I received those communications myself, yeah. right? Uh, when I was voicing, venting my frustration about you know the election results, uh, there's a kind of a harshness to it even sometimes, as well as of course the grim satisfaction of having won and they lost and we had to suffer for the last eight years under your reign and now it's our turn, fine. That's politics as usual, I'm down with that. But the name calling, the the, the vindictiveness, the vitriol. I'm gonna sound um, tribal Mm -hmm. and I can't avoid it in this setting. I think the evidence suggests it. I I welcome those in the audience to believe I'm being biased and investigate it for themselves. Um, This does exist on the left, but I think there's lots of evidence that the the punitiveness that we witness is much more pronounced, especially on the far authoritarian right. I agree with you. The real strong yeah. supporters of, of um, Trump 
are, are deeply authoritarian and punitive in their in their mindsets. Um, so again, certainly on certain issues. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, the, the, you know, immigration. It's, it's it becomes very black and white. I've had those arguments with with some of these people. My experience, of course, is only anecdotal, but you, you see the conservative media, conservative think tanks, and conservative individuals all on the same page on this. Yeah, you know? and, and there, there's a fundamental distinction also between what we need to do politically mm-hmm. and how we you know, understand these things scientifically. I think they're related, mm-hmm. but they're not the exact same thing. Um, politically, some of the ideas uh, on the far right now are so dangerous. I mean, the, 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 the fact, you know, the president appearing like maybe a week ago saying that the world's scientists are conspiring for money to deny climate right. change. I mean, it's so palpably absurd. I mean, the richest companies in the world are oil companies, and you'd make a ton of money. They would be starving to hear a scientist say that global warming is no problem and we can continue, you know, burning fossil fuels. Right. So it's just, it's palpably irrational. I'm not saying that to say, oh, you idiots. I'm simply saying, what's going on here emotionally about that? And it's very dangerous to deny these things. Now, let me double back, and I don't know if you want me to segue to some of my work a little bit. No, I, actually, I want to get to that. Oh, okay, because this is related yeah. here. I... I think that most of the science denial that's more consequential occurs on the right. And if uh, people are interested in that, the excellent science journalist uh, Chris Mooney wrote a book called The Republican Brain. He just does a wonderful job sort of capturing the wide array of evidence for this. Um, But it turns out the moral intuitions on the left also lead to biases that lead us to distorted views of the world. Mm -hmm. So what my colleagues and I have been doing over the last four or five years, we've been going to major controversies in social science. And it turns out academia is predominantly left liberal, overwhelmingly so. I mean, surprise. Right. So (laughs) anthropology, my field, sociology, um, the latest survey we just did of sociologists found that um, only 2% identified as conservative, 2% identified as libertarian. I mean, overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. was uh, liberal, liberal, and then a pr- pretty large chunk of radicals also on the left right. in sociology. And, and I am concerned about that. I criticize that, not because I am uh, feeling like we need to uh, do away with all those people. I just want, I, I bring it up because, uh, and I think for similar reasons to what your studies are going are gonna to show, is um, these biases affect results. They do. Because we're humans. We're not machines. I, I've made the case many, many times in many, many videos about cognitive mechanisms that we all use. I want to say suffer from in some ways. They push us in these biased directions. We can't help it. We are emotional creatures. We go with what feels good or feels uh, right. You're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Absolutely right. And that's how we're interpreting the evidence, the stimuli in the world. Right. So if you take someone on the right who's more oriented toward a kind of tribal us-them sensibility and they're more triggered by fear, well, then you ask, and I'm going to sound a bit stereotypical, but you ask your average Fox viewer what percentage of crimes are committed by undocumented, or I guess they would say illegal aliens. Mm-hmm. They're going to overestimate it in right. a wild way, right? So, okay, that's over there. I'm not here to belittle them. I will, in full disclosure, fight against them politically because I support progressive policies, but I'm not here to belittle them. I'm here to talk a little bit about my own group or my own tribe. And it turns out the left sensibilities of care, this concern for vulnerable groups, and the, the attraction of a kind of virtue signaling within the group renders certain kinds of questions 
sort of taboo within social science. So what I do is I go to those taboo questions. I did this in the field of anthropology and sociology. I also have a study in econ economists if you're interested in talking about it. But uh, this most recent one's on sociologists. So a number of different controversies there. The first one was the roots of um, poverty in the inner city, particularly among the black community, specifically among the black community. Second one was gendered occupational choice. Why do we see a distribution of jobs that aren't equal? You know, women, women being concentrated in jobs that are less remunerative, for example, in different kinds of jobs than men. And then finally, immigration. Can flows of immigration cause disruption that we need to be concerned about or not? And can they undermine social or cultural cohesion? Mm -hmm. So these are the questions that we asked in our survey. And and the other surveys as well, and other kinds of questions, but in different fields. We always go to the controversies. And what we find again and again and again is that the best predictor of where a social scientist stands on a particular question is their self-identified political orientation, right? So if you, if, and we give them a, a list, we can identify as radical, liberal, moderate, conservative, or libertarian. And of course, there are so few conservatives and libertarians, they don't even enter into the discussion. Um, so yeah, so there's radical, liberal, and moderate, sociologists. And so, for example, we want to go to gendered occupational choice, a very hot button issue right now. In other words, why are there more men in certain occupations than women? Yeah, and, and, and the ones that men occupy tend to be on average paid more. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge controversy over STEM fields. Mm -hmm. you, I don't know if you remember the old Larry Summers event that happened at Harvard at a gender conference where he, he raised this question of whether part of the reason for the disparity and, you know, the overrepresentation of men in STEM could be biological. Well, I mean, he, he would resign, I believe, within a year after that. Was, right. I, I'm not saying that was the only reason. Um, there were other problems, but it didn't help. Uh, so there's massive public and social reaction. So rather, um, I don't know if we threw caution to the wind, but we decided to revisit that controversy. And um, we asked sociologists whether um, biology could interact with other explanatory factors. So we're very, very clear. We provide research vignettes to sort of give an overview. We're very clear that there's consensus among sociologists that discrimination, you know, in other words, men in positions of power not enabling women to rise up, plays a role in gender stratification. And socialization, of course, is deeply important. How young girls come to define themselves as girls and how young boys come to define themselves as boys. But we also ask whether there could be a, a biological component to this. Massive studies done internationally uh, will show that women on average, got to hit the average again, will tend to want to work with people more than men do. It's not mm. that men don't want to, and there are many men that do. But on average, women want to work with people more, and men will be more likely to want to work with things than women will. More mechanic mecha mechanistic. Mechanistic, yeah. right. And there's lots and lots of evidence for this. If you look at some of the early testing of boys and girls, you'll find that girls tend to outperform boys on um, reading and writing and communication, kind of human-related tasks, facial recognition. Um, boys will outperform girls on spatial rotation. Right, uh, things that could have make sense from an evolutionary point of view as well, right? So you have these testing results, you have interest inventories where what do you want to do when you grow up and what kind of field you'd like to go into, and they continue to point in this kind of direction. And yet, if you raise this question with sociologists, could there be a biological component? Um, and what we ask them, is it plausible there could be a biological component? Maybe, I don't know if we share a couple numbers with you really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so just, um, oh, I don't have the exact question. It's not the exact question, but women in people-oriented professions, partly biological. We mentioned like social work and nursing. There could be a biological component for that. And um, here I have the numbers broken down politically. So radical sociologists 
16% believe that's plausible. It's not that it's true, but plausible. There could be a biological... There's, there could, possi could possibly... It could possibly be I mean, the well, case. I guess it's plausible. It's a little more than possible. Maybe yeah. just a hint more. Okay. Um, but Maybe. not much. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And then 35% of liberal, and then 39% of moderate. So on question after question, we see this stairwell. Mm -hmm. Almost virtually... I mean, almost every question, where radicals will take a position and then it'll go, it, it might go down, whatever the direction is, it's gonna be linear, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the question. Um, so what's going on? Why is there such resistance to this? I, none of my studies, or I say my colleagues in our studies, do we really see it as our objective to take a position? You know, I'm not there saying, come on guys, you gotta, you know, gals, you gotta believe this. Um, it's just exploring the relationships between scholars' political orientations and certain potentially plausible uh, positions now. In full disclosure, I'm not a cons total constructionist anymore, and I have come to I gain a lot of insight from evolutionary biology. And it's highly plausible to me that evolution shaped us in more than just our genitalia, and that there could be, on average, psychological differences that it, that shape in part in tandem with socialization and sexism. Right. So I'm am inclined to not just see that as plausible, but to see that as um, convincing. But end of the day, that's not our goal. Our goal is to simply show sociologists that their emotions and their morality, which is manifested in their political orientations, shapes their receptiveness to certain ideas. And if certain ideas suggest that a vulnerable group might even in part be naturally inclined to choose positions that are less remunerative in the, in the society, it's kind of policed. It can't be. I had one respondent say, like, I'm going to out myself right now. You know, even though social factors are more important, biology matters, you know. I'm going to out myself like it's some huge te moral testimonial. You know I mean? Well, it has become that. Right. And that's actually, as an academic, this is what I really wanted to dig into the, de the, the, the details of. Because, um, because there is a lot of literature out there that suggests that since the 1960s and the countercultural revolution, those people are the ones who then finished their degrees, <laughs> went on to become teachers, and shaped academia through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and all the way through to today. And we've had now, you know, one or two, or I guess we're coming up on three generations now of effect of this. And I, I have to, first I'm going to ask you, just statistically speaking, or, or study speaking, I doubt that this information exists, but does this same data set exist for, say, 1950? asking academic professors these kinds of questions? I, Obviously not these exact questions. I don't know the answer. Um, I, my hunch would be that you're right, that the 60s was a watershed, yeah. and that it, it might have even been more hospitable at that time, because mm -hmm. what uh, you may be, I mentioned Jonathan Haidt earlier, but he and his colleagues also traced how the disparity in, in liberal and conservative representation is growing. So now it's like they're getting, conservatives are, Vanishing. I mean, to the point where the numbers weren't so severe in the 50s. Right. So we would expect more... More of a balance. More receptivity yeah. to this sort of argument, right? And this is part of the danger. Well, it is, because yeah. for me, what this communicates, I mean, in terms of critique of... It, this isn't a, a critique of the left. It's a critique of academic institutions, which should, I believe, provide a fairly neutral education in terms of ideology. I mean, if, in other words, if you're going to teach about religion, well, you better teach about all the religions. You know, you don't just teach Christianity, because that'll give kids the idea, before they're up to forming judgment, <laughs> that 
this is the right one because this is the only one they taught us about. And they hear about these other ones and go, well, that can't be right because I learned all about Christianity and that's how it is. So if you're going to teach religion, well, good. <coughs> Please do teach religion, but teach all of them. Talk about Islam. Talk about Confucianism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and the whole lot. Then you're not favoring anyone. You're not inclining a person through the education. It's education. It's not indoctrination. Yeah. And, and right? You're making... Yeah. Same thing with politics. Right. If you're going to teach left, you got to teach right. you gotta, you got to represent both of these. If there's anywhere we should have equal time, fair representation type of policies, it's education. I think more so than even news. So this tends to indicate that that's not going to be the case when 96% of academia leans liberal, even if they wanted to. Well, their uh, biases would get in the way of them teaching a fully neutral platform, neutral. I'm going to I'm going to tweak something because uh, yeah. much of what you said I I, I find con, uh, compelling, but I'm going to tweak uh, the, yeah. this word neutral for a minute. Um, and just as a point of correction, sociology at least it's 13% moderate. Four percent. So let's give seventeen percent that are not li left liberal. <laughs> okay. uh, it's still pretty small. Yeah, it's still, wanna, it's still uh, and that's my sample, but my sample echoes prior research done. Right. We're so, still yeah, talking still about overwhelming a liberal preponderance. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's it's not so much. I would I would suggest that you can teach neutrally because no one can. Mm -hmm. What what we need is uh, viewpoint diversity. Exactly. So what it is is that because this is part of who we are. Um, we, we can feign neutrality, but at the end of the day, um, faculty are going to choose the books that resonate with that's them. That's right. So, and this is a debate that's a tough one in classrooms. I actually fall on the, probably the less popular end. I, I fall on, um, or less common, I fall on the open with my students about my political moral sensibilities end of the spectrum. There's pros and cons to both positions. Um, the danger of being open, which I am with my students, is it can create a climate where they're going to feel they need to conform and, mm -hmm. and pose as being sympathetic to my, my, my more progressive orientation. But I, I can't, I over, almost overemphasize with them that, um, bend over backwards that um, this is an, a hospital environment. If anything, coming from a more conservative point of view, I'm going to be extra cautious, right? But that's a legitimate critique. Others feel they need to conceal it, but the problem with concealing it is that, going back to this idea of neutrality, you're choosing the books your intonation is going to reflect your interests. So if anything, by telling them, you're protecting them from me and mm -hmm. my biased potential mm -hmm. interpretations of evidence. I think, I think a full disclosure on something like that is important, especially in fields where opinion enters in. Because social sciences are not a hard science. It's not physics. You know, nobody, when, when you're talking about a particular variable in physics, your opinion does not matter as to what the numbers should be or how the results should come out, it's science. It's, 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 yeah, it's math, it's not, right? It's not triggering underlying emotions that matter to human communities. Right. And because and people differ on those triggers, they're going to end up interpreting evidence differently. So going back to the key point of viewpoint diversity, uh, there's an organization called Heterodox Academy. It was mm. founded by Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist I mentioned earlier. And um, it's just advocating to bring in more conservative voices to ensure that there's not this kind of policing of ideas. Um, and it's not just policing. Here's a, a few quotes of some of the sociologists. And again, I should stress, I can't speak to generalizability. I gave comment boxes throughout the survey. People chose to comment or not. So I'm not suggesting most. My hunch is that only about maybe a quarter of the field has this, this level of kind of moral 
moralization. Uh, others are sympathetic to it, but they wouldn't be this vocal. Um, the biology argument sounds similar to early attempts to pinpoint biological differences between blacks and whites that are not laughable. This is absurd. Shame on you researchers for creating a controversial issue that's not in fact controversial. So on this issue of gendered occupational choice, maybe there's a biological factor on average that's interacting with discrimination and socialization to create the, you know, the gender distribution of work roles. Strong reaction of sh among a, a subset of sociologists, I would say more on the radical end, more on the intersectional end, in terms of uh, the concept of intersectionality in social science, it's very popular today. And that will kind of, the, here's the word shame itself, they'll react mm -hmm. very emotively. Uh, similar when it came to inner city poverty, mm -hmm. how can, we raised the question of whether, we revisited the old culture of poverty argument. Um, what what are the reasons for the you know perpetuation of such entrenched poverty and social problems like violence and out of wedlock births in the inner city? And um, the dominant position among social scientists is institutional discrimination with deep, deep roots in racism, uh, entrenched poverty itself, which tends to perpetuate itself, poor schools, uh, discrimination among political and other elites that do not allow these groups to succeed. Oh, there's um, so many factors. Which are all real. Yeah, it's a heavily complicated issue, oh, which is my biggest problem with the oversimplification of this stuff. No, no doubt. It's this, it's that. Dude, how about it's all of it? But, <laughs> but, but once we understand that part of the arguments that you hear in the Twitter sphere, is that a word? Yeah. Okay. It uh, is, has more to do with the audience that the person's getting moral credibility with, right? right? Then, right. then really trying well, to. Well, social explain. media is all about give me the feels. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's give me the likes, give me the hearts, give me the, you know, the 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 positive retweets. Give me the, you know, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to uh, get uh, what's the word. Uh, Anyway, whatever. Exiled. You know, or, yeah, you don't want to. Ostracized. Yes. Or, you know. um, yeah. No. The the. The question we posed then was, is it possible that although these structural factors and historical factors are more important, is it possible that there could be a cultural component? Like certain cultural practices make a bad situation worse right. in the inner city. And can you predict where radicals, liberals, and moderates would stand on that? Like if you asked, is it plausible? Which group would be more receptive to the idea that, yeah, maybe culture does matter? Well, it turns out to be the moderates much, mm -hmm. much more than the radicals, right. right? So what's going on? Well, this care concern for vulnerable groups that in the context where you don't have the viewpoint diversity reinforces in a kind of, we call it an emotive community. It's like an echo chamber. And uh, people who raise it, what are you saying? Their culture's to blame? Right. Right. And they immediately shift it onto some logical fallacy mm -hmm. that's not what you're saying. Yeah, it's just, but, if we want to understand the, what's really going on in the world, then we need to entertain these hypotheses. It's hard to do when they choke against our moral intuitions. Right. But by my dream, and I don't know how optimistic I am about it, but my dream is that by becoming aware of it more and more and more, kind of like encouraging an awareness of ourselves as moral agents, you know, oriented to try to figure out the world, we can then put it aside. I have an N of one. I've done it to a large extent. My, my political values are as far to the left as they were when I was in graduate school. I'm deeply committed to social justice, social equality, ecological sustainability. I haven't changed that at all. But by reflecting deeply on our evolved nature, our human nature, I've come to sort of appreciate that the differences on the opposite end of the spectrum, first of all, are natural. They emote differently. And I even learned ways in which like we talked about earlier, conscientiousness on the political right. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a strong sense of group loyalty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, if you take the valuation out of the picture, right. 
you know, then you can just start, if you stop thinking that science is all about making moral statements. Oh, really well put. You know? Absolutely right. And people confuse the two. Like going right. back to this issue of um, gendered occupational choice, I mean, I proudly identify as feminist. I enjoy identifying as feminist. You know, but you got to separate that from your empirical analysis of why you believe the world is the way it is. Because there's this hypersensitivity to vulnerable groups, any in indicator of, of inequality becomes tantamount, well, there must be discrimination at the root of it. Right. And I'm not saying there's not. Of course there is. We are emerging out of a long history of patriarchy, and men still dominate most of the positions of power in the society. We still live, I think, in a patriarchy. But that doesn't mean that's the magic explanatory key. Right. of this phenomenon, and we need to be open to hypotheses that might choke against our sensibility. And that's the hard part, because it requires intellectual honesty, a moral fiber towards truth being more important than your own views of things. Yes. Truth over right? tribe, I like to say, yeah. it's alliterative. Exactly. I, um, I guess I'm sort of thinking right now, relating this to my own experience and, and things I've talked about on this channel here, that... You know, there's a phenomenon you find in coming out of a destructive cult and talking about it. That there's a, a great number of people who will say, stupid morons. You know, you've got to be an idiot to fall for yeah. that. What kind of fool, right? Um, now, of course, there's, that's just, you know, fundamental attribution error uh, at work, you know. Uh, it's also blame the victim. There's all kinds of things you could call that. But what it really comes down to is a belief, a sort of, <laughs> faith, really, because this isn't backed up by any evidence at all, that intelligence is some kind of shield from bias no, no, and right. from our emotions. And intelligence is no shield. I have made this point over and over again, and my audience pretty much gets it now, that, you know, because I've, 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 I've demonstrated in my own behavior and in the behavior of other ex-cult members that intelligence wasn't the thing mm. that got us in, it wasn't the thing that got us out, and it was in no way, shape, or form a shield from our emotional longing and yearning and push in these various directions to join a cult. I bring this up because academia are our intelligentsia. They are our, our smartest people, are the ones who are drawn to that, who stick with it. It's a commitment. It's an expensive commitment for most. It's, a, not, it's a, not highly remunerative, mostly. That's right. A lot There's of education a lot of sacrifice, with care, yeah. right? Um, very, very intelligent people. Most of them motivated, I'm sure. I think I feel safe in blanket saying most of them motivated by wanting to do good in the world. You know, we're not talking about a bunch of Nazis. And what's funny about that is that the Nazis themselves believed they were doing good in the world. Exactly. So it gets extremely complicated. That's, the, we're my, all, that's where this we're is all going. righteous. That's right. That's yeah. where this is going, yeah. right? Is, is it's not, is, is intelligence, you know, you can look at somebody like Ben Carson and you can go, dude, you know, right. brilliant brain surgeon, a revolutionary brain surgeon, right? It saves people's lives. Dumber than a doorknob when it comes to talking about history. Or, you know, thinking you know, the, the pyramids, for example, or, or you know, that. grain storage right. units, right? You're just like, what are you talking about? Well, so, in his defense, we could say ignorant. Well, yeah, fair enough. Dumb. But, yeah, actually, <laughs> actually true. Ignorant <laughs> is, is a better word. Mm -hmm. My point being that these are a bunch of very smart people we're surveying, we're talking about. 
that doesn't mean that they're so smart that they outsmart their emotional biases. Well, you, the, know, or, you, you reminded me in that example of um, a point that Chris Mooney makes uh, in his book, um, Republican Brain. He shows some data that um, the more educated a conservative is, the less likely they will believe in human influence climate change. So it's a direct opposite correlation, like more information, more knowledge, more denial. That is so funny because that's exactly parallel to the cult thinking. And the it, more and intelligent the person is, the harder, the easier and harder it is, or the easier it is to get them in, the harder it is to get them out, and the harder they fall for it because all of their intelligence is utilized. It's like commandeered for commitment. To rationalize, rationalize the commitment. It, yeah. And that's why, it, it, now that I've like, reading this for so long, and I think both of us are in kindred spirit and understanding this, you know, it's not, people will say on the left, like, how do you deny that the world's scientists? Why can't you see this? We're looking at these weather patterns. Well, because it's about their team. Right. When they're saying it's not happening, it's about their team affirming that you're one of us. That's right. And keep in mind, like, also, the kinds of, Social and political policies that would be involved to really take on climate change are so intrusive. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to suggest an easy answer. You know what I mean? It's going to raise questions about how we organize the economy. Yep. So uh, even so, those that do have a more sort of developed political ideology would be opposed on that grounds as well. Exactly. So it's it's a very complicated thing. It's anchored on so different levels. Remember the first comment: all the levels, so yep. the evolved level, the biological level, social psychological level. Then we have all these social forces. Part of what's going on politically right now is that structural changes over the past at least 50 years are are exacerbating this human tendency. You, know, you go back a generation or so, you're going to have people who, who have different politics, but they didn't have the ability to just watch Fox and MSNBC. Mm -hmm. They didn't have social media to get in their own little bubble. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to kind of sit down in the bar with their neighbor who they didn't, you know, oh, Joe, he's crazy, but I love him. You know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Where you, you can, are he going back to this point about human cooperation, we can connect on other levels besides our moral intuitions, right. but we're losing that. And then when we only put ourselves in these tiny little spheres and, and we, we kind of viscerally know we're right, because our moral values tell us we're right on each side, it's a very, very dangerous cocktail. Exactly. And this is where social media is not um, the cause of a thing. It is uh, a magnifying glass for these tendencies. Yeah, I think have. it exacerbates it. I think on yeah. balance, I'm not opposed to social media, and I think internet on balance is a fabulous technology, bringing mm -hmm. human beings together. But like anything else, it's not black and white. There's going to be trade-offs. Yeah. There's other factors, too, involved in this. I mean, a lot of the uh, political science literature just points to shifting political changes, the, uh, when there was a realignment with the Democratic Party after civil rights. So there's a shift in the South to the Republican Party. Yeah. We're seeing more and more self-sorting. So liberals and Conservatives are literally moving to different locations. More conservatives moving to rural areas. You know, so you have a self-sorting process. You have political elites themselves. I'll be discussing this in the talk of the secular hub. Political elites themselves that are actually consciously kind of exploiting these differences that go beyond moral intuitions to people's lifestyles, like what food you eat, what car you drive. That's being increasingly politicized too. Wow. So it's it's a complicated, multifaceted problem. And well, yeah, we've always known that the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is so stereotypical. It's just horrible of me to say shit like this. But, you know, America, you know, I got my Ford truck in the parking, you know, in the driveway, right? Right, right. And the gun rack and the mm -hmm. Confederate flag and all. And, and you know, it's what just they're doing is they're symbolism. literally playing on a sense of group identity. Yeah. And so, and then you're not going to think. It's just going to be, well, it's my family. I can't. He might be, what's the old expression? He's a 
I hate the word asshole, but my asshole. You know what I mean? It's like he's in, he's my jerk, so he's, right. he's going to be part of my group. So when you constantly f- kind of nurturing or instigating group identity, you're leading people to not want to think through these issues for their consequences. Critical thinking might be boring, but we need it more than ever. And that's the then that kind of activity on the part of leadership is where we eventually get to cult status. And that's that's where the that's where as far as I'm concerned from a group identity or from a, not a group identity from a group point of view of looking at our nation for example um, if we start if we reinforce that if we keep pushing ourselves in that direction allowing leaders to lead us around by the nose and not being independent critical thinkers we all the ingredients of cult membership are inherent in us you know, if there's one statement I could make that would summarize every single video I've ever made, that's it. No, it's a, you it's, know? A, it's a great point. Because I came out of Scientology thinking there was something unusual and different about cult members. And what I've learned over the last four and a half years is they're just like everybody else. There is no difference. The only thing with them is they've t- turned the dial up to 11 on their extremism. And that's where all of this goes. And that's why I am so concerned about it. Because when I see large swaths of the population falling into these kind of thinking patterns. And, and again, correlated with they're interacting with people in the same geography. They're going to the same restaurants. They're getting political leaders that play on those cultural differences as ways to reinforce the underlying moral political differences. Exactly. All of these in the social media sites, the cable news they're, they're listening to, all of these things feed into more and more tribalism and less and less common ground that can be built between exactly. people. That's right. And going back to your initial point about leadership, too, it's you're, you're 100% right. I mean, at the end of the day, if the culture changes, leaders won't be successful that are tribal. It's because we are so tribal and we're so divided. I mean, uh, again, I'll sign I'll sound partisan here, but Trump did not have any coherent political philosophy. He literally, his only philosophy was, our team's going to win. You'll be bored by how much we win. It was literally a distillation of pure tribalism. Yep. That's all it was. It had no actual policy underpinning. And if you polled the people who supported him, I don't mean it as an insult, but they're not going to know these policy questions quite a bit. There was some data on that about Fox News viewers. Again, I'm not saying that in a partisan spirit. Um, there's ignorance all over the place. Right. But it, It's uh, simply the data. Yeah. Right? And this isn't even a thing of, like, the data, you know, that I've heard this stupid expression. It really just annoys me to no end. Uh, you know, the, the truth has a liberal bias. Liberals say that. <laughs> and about their news sources and stuff, right? And I just go, come on, guys. I mean, could you be any more biased? No, it's, it's a very tribal you thing know. to say. But it's, yeah. that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to reflect on that. Um, there's an interpretation that could make some sense in the sense that I had made a point earlier that some of the most consequential questions, you think like I'd mentioned climate change, think about evolutionary theory writ large. Yeah. Um, you're going to find more science denial on the right than I, I agree with I'm that. going to areas where, the, where progressives are biased. Right. Um, I mean, to push back, we're probably getting close to the end here. But if indeed it's the case that we somehow could come up with an unbiased study, who knows, (laughs) uh, it would probably find, I mean, Mooney's work suggests this, Chris Mooney, um, that there's much, much more science now on the right, then that phrase could make some sense. In the sense that, you see what I mean by that? No, no, I do. Not so much reality is liberal bias. Liberals see more of reality, even though they're biased in their own ways. I know. That may not resonate with you. And saying that is just... You know, I just all it does go, is peak and create tribal because all it does is feed a tribal it narrative. It does. 
But if even it is if there's true, a grain it, of truth well, there. But hold on, let me push back. If it is true, though, if true, we have to put truth over tribe. Fair enough. We can't allow our own tribalism, Fair enough, our man. sensitivity to tribalism, trump. You got you know, it. That's you know. a very good point. All right. It's probably the best rejoinder I could, I could <laughs> all right, get on well, that fair one. Fair enough. All right. Well, and, and, and again, all good points. I wanted to talk about this stuff because I want to stimulate you guys out there to, to find out more about this stuff. You know, I'm going to put some links to a um, couple papers you've put sure. out. Sure. I'm happy to send okay. it. Okay. So, I, yeah. I'm, do you want to suggest a few sources? Or? Go right ahead. Um, not my own. I mean, the links to my papers will do it, but I certainly recommend Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind. I had mm. mentioned Chris Mooney's Republican Brain. Uh, Righteous Mind is right there. there it's on one of my books here. One of the books <laughs> back here. Yeah. Uh, Hibbing. I had mentioned Hibbing and colleagues' work, uh, Predisposed. Uh, there's an excellent book on political polarization by Liliana Mason called Uncivil Agreement. And any of the psychological work, I think, done by Jonathan Jost is also really helpful. Good, good. Okay, so so there's some sources for you folks out there that you can check out more on this. And, um, and we are going to kind of wrap up now. Were there okay. any other points that you wanted to make that we didn't get a chance to because of the way our discourse went? I don't think so. I mean, I would just, re I guess, reiterate again um, I'm not tremendously optimistic, but I think the only hope we have, given all of these forces conspiring against unity, is to begin to understand how we've evolved, why we are this way, why we're tribal, and try to, in my own life experience, my brother has the opposite political sensibilities than I do. We haven't had a fight in years since I started engaging this stuff because it doesn't make sense to fight. We're just different people. Am I going to get mad at you because you're shorter or taller than me? No, then why should I get mad at you if you emote differently and it leads you to different political conclusions than me? Exactly. So we, we have to see each other and kind of begrudgingly understand that people are different and hope that lays the groundwork for more consensus. Exactly. Because you're going to, and for those of you out there who are right now typing comments on this saying, but they do this and <laughs> right, but right. they do that. Right. I know. We know. We do know this, okay? And we still would preach a message of unity and understanding because if you think... I mean, come on, guys. If you think that continuing this fractured divisiveness is working and somehow we're defeating them, mm. come on. R rethink the strategy here, okay? If nothing else, just rethink the strategy. You can feel as passionate and, you know, they're just the enemy and they must be destroyed. But if you, if you kind of, you know, there's a saying that I just read Yesterday, I, I can't I can't name the, the the source of this quote, but it was that um, <sighs> hatred destroys the container that it's stored in. Mm. You know, like you know, we can do better. We can be better. Exactly. And that's what I would like to, within no way, without in any way compromising our moral principles mm -hmm. or our values. It's a matter of how do we, how do we manifest those moral principles in the real world, not just in our heads, but how do we actually bring them to fruition? We work together. You know, if we continue being divided, there's, we know where this goes. We know where it goes historically. We all, we have many, 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 many examples. That always leads to death and destruction. And then we always wonder afterwards, why, why, why did this have to happen? Well, right now, we have the opportunity to do something about that before that sort of thing comes about. And yeah, I'm talking about bloody revolution and civil war and all that. And I'm not saying that all that's imminent. I'm saying it's possible. And if we don't make a change in how we're doing things and how we're approaching each other, 
then that is a fairly inevitable conclusion because we are emotionally driven creatures and we have tendencies toward violence. And we have not even come close to evolving beyond any of that yet. Okay, thank you very much for... Eloquently stated. Thank you. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank <laughs> yes. you so much for inviting me on. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, okay, guys, any questions, comments, or feedback, leave them in the comment section here below on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Thank you again for being on my podcast. Delighted. Awesome. Thanks, and uh, see you guys next week. Bye-bye.